This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the beautiful and intuitive website platform that allows anyone to easily create professional web pages, blogs, online stores, and galleries on a single platform. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME4. Hi, this is Ivarian X, and welcome to another episode of The Candid Frame. Before we begin, if you are listening to this episode before April 24th, 2013, I want to invite you to take part in a Google Hangout with photographer Sean R. Bobby. In the last couple of months, I've been expanding my use of Google+, specifically its Hangout, and the opportunity it provides me to not only interview other photographers, but also share work, something that I'm not able to do with the audio podcast. We've done a couple so, so far, and they've been really, really successful, and I'm slowly going to be building on that. So if you're already already a member of the Google Plus community, or even if you're not, come and check it out. It's going to be held on Wednesday, April 24th, starting at 7 p.m. Pacific Time. And don't worry, even if you're not able to make it uh, to listen to it live, it is going to be on my YouTube channel. So all you'll need to do is go to the blog page for The Candid Frame at thecandidframe.com and there'll be a link so you can watch it during or after the fact. I hope to see some of you there. Today's guest is Don Komarechka. And he is a photographer who's been making these amazing photographs of snowflakes. And I know that some of you may have seen snowflake pictures before, but you've never seen anything like like his. And so when a friend sent me a link to take a look at his work, I realized that I was looking at something that was really, really exceptional. And then soon after, he contacted me about being a guest on the show. So I felt like, well, I'm just going to take that as a sign. And so I invited him to appear on The Candid Frame. And I really enjoyed the conversation that I, I had with him. I got to listen to a couple of other interviews that he's done. He's a he's a semi-regular on TWIP, This Week in Photo, uh, which some of you may already listen to. And it's a great, another great photography podcast. And he's also been on Martin Bailey's show. So if you want to hear another take on my conversation with Don, take a listen to Martin's podcast, which is also a, a stellar program. But uh, as you'll find, uh, I always like taking a slightly different take on all my conversations. And I hope that not only do you get inspired to just go out and shoot, not just macro work or, 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 or landscape or travel, but just whatever it is you have a passion for, I hope that this conversation spurs you to get out there and just do some shooting. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Don Kamarachka. Well, Don, welcome to the Candid Frame. Thank you very much for having me, Baronex. I'm glad to have this conversation with you. I've uh, I've listened to a number of your conversations that you've had with other photographers, and I've always found them very inspiring, and I'm, and I'm honored to be part of it. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Well, your images are very, very cool and your, your snowflake pictures are, are amazing. And we'll get to that. But it was really interesting in looking at your work and having the opportunity to listen to some of the other interviews that you've done 
that there's a bit of the technician to the way that you craft your images. <laughs> I'm, as a photographer, tend to be very more impulsive. I don't really like the idea of planning something ahead of time is something that just sort of fit my style. But it gives me a great appreciation for how you sort of have to be very systematic in terms of making your shot happen. To start off, how do you sort of figure that balance between being the technician and being the artist? It's a tough balance. Uh, I, I think of myself as an artist first and foremost, but I've always had a love for uh, science and sort of the, the underlying understanding of how everything works. And, and so that gives me some interesting ideas. Just out of the blue, I might think, okay, well, I can play around with this type of water droplet refraction. And I might be doing something completely different. I might be out photographing waterfalls or, or doing something a little bit more artistic. And then I, I just get this idea and I stick that in the back of my head for uh, you know a rainy day and, and I get out all the, uh, the, the macro photography gear and I play around and and boom, the earth goes into a water droplet. And, you know, I'm just surprised with the results. I think that I don't come up with those premeditated and, and pre-visualized ideas just by sitting around and twiddling my thumbs. They come to me when I'm out, you know, being impulsive. And uh, my mind is just always active and it's thinking ahead uh, to whatever the next thing's going to be or how to refine what I'm currently doing. It, it, it's a process and it's one that requires... I guess a little bit of spontaneity, but at the end of it, some of my images have taken months and months to plan. But, you know, at the same time, I'm, I'm working on other things too, and it all just sort of flows together. I ask you that question because I know that for many, photography is a very technical practice. There's this equipment, there are these means by which we have to utilize lenses and cameras and exposures and settings in order to record a viable image. But I think many end up struggling to get past that point to get creative. So they produce what? images that are technically proficient, but lack that spark of imagination. How did you get to the point where you were able to make that leap and not get stuck into that thing of just refining technique, but never really refining vision? When I was uh, first getting my inspiration in photography, I, I went to a used bookstore and I just bought a whole bunch of old photo books, some of them on darkroom techniques and some of them on, you know, film cameras and that kind of stuff. And I'm just flipping through the pages and seeing a lot of outside the box thinking. But one of the books that really caught my attention was uh, National Geographic had, I think it was in the mid 90s, published a book called National Geographic, The Photographs. And it had chronicled the entire history of the National Geographic, you know, photography from, you know, the, the glass plates all the way through up until uh, when you know, the book was published in the mid 90s. I, I read the book cover to cover and, and one statement in that book really stood out for me. And uh, they were asking one of the photographers and I wish I could remember his name, but uh, they, they were asking, you know, what is your secret? How do you take such fantastic images? There's got to be some secret formula. Can you fill us in? And the guy just shrugged and said, F8 and be there. And those words really rang, rang in my mind for quite a while because, you know, it, it abstracts the technical stuff. It, it takes all that technical proficiency and says, okay, yeah, you need that. But the camera can be on arbitrary settings. You know what the camera should be doing. You know, at that point, you should have that known like the back of your hand. The important factor is being there. It's getting yourself into a position where you can make that image. I did some traveling last year uh, to Bulgaria and the northern Yukon, and the images that I made there were absolutely fantastic. I, I, you know, no matter how technically proficient I can make an image in my backyard, it's not going to have the wow factor as those images. Being 
in the right place at the right time and forcing yourself to be there is not only a, a great way to make a great image, but it's a great way to live your life. Uh, I, I think about photography. I've owned a camera for about five years. I've been a professional for about three. So I'd like to say I'm, I'm kind of a new kid to it. But when I look at these experiences that I've had because I intended to go out and take a picture, I've had better life experiences because of that. You know, I, I cherish a lot of these memories and these locations, you know, the adventures that I've gone on. And it's all because I, I sort of remembered I had to be there in order to set the camera to F8 or whatever setting. It doesn't matter. But being in that place, I think, is one of the most important elements of, uh, of taking a picture. And, you know, that means sometimes I, I'm outside at two in the morning photographing snowflakes when I should be sleeping. Or it means I'm in the middle of the wilderness, isolated, photographing the northern lights. But being there, wherever that image that you need to capture is, I think that's the most important part. Well, that, that desire to take it the extra level, getting up at three or four in the morning to go out and hike somewhere in order to make the photograph, things like that don't come easy. No, and I'm not a morning person. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that is an important element. And a lot of people take a look at those photographs and they think about how wonderful it is to make those pictures, but they don't think about the fact that they have to experience a certain level of discomfort in order to be able to get to that place, in order to be prepared and ready to be able to take advantage of that, of that moment. Talk to us about that, you know, the discomfort, the, you know, the choice to not just stay in bed where it's nice and toasty, but some of the, sometimes the, the challenges that you have to walk through in, in order to be able to make those pictures and, and how do you sort of get past them? Uh, well, oftentimes I find the best way is to not give yourself a choice. When you travel, uh, that's the biggest thing right there is if, if I'm traveling for photography, then I know that I'm going to take every single chance that I can to take a great image. I'll get up at whatever hour. I'll hike as far as I need to. I'll, I'll climb up a mountain. I'll do whatever it takes because the entire purpose of that trip, as soon as I left the door and got on an airplane to go wherever, that means that I'm working. And it's sort of a, a mental game where I just have to tell myself that that is exactly what I'm there for. And not to do it means that I'm doing myself a disservice. It's harder when I'm at home because, yeah, it's so tempting to just stay in that comfy bed and, and just wait for the alarm clock to wake me up at nine or, or whenever. When I was in the Yukon recently, it was kind of fun because I was doing some time-lapse video work and the camera battery will last about four hours constantly being used. Uh, so taking one 30-second frame after the next, you know, photographing the night sky. And that means that, you know, I, I'll go to bed and I've got to wake up about three and a half hours later, trudge out in the, the cold, dark, pop out the camera battery and pop in a new one. And that takes a lot of motivation to do that. And one of the shots ended up, you know, you go out and you see the camera just completely covered in frost. Beautiful, but ruining every image from that point forward in the night. Sometimes your motivation is all for naught, but you've got to take that risk. You've got to take that challenge to get the shot. But pre-visualizing helps get that motivation. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll take one frame and I'll see the beautiful thing that I'm capturing and I'll know, okay, I've got to come back in a few hours. I've got to do this. Uh, I've, I've done a lot of star trail images where I'm just sitting in the dark for an hour or two, being scared by every single little noise around me that I think's, you know, a wolf or whatever, and it's a chipmunk. <laughs> that, that level of discomfort, I, I know at the end, there's two things that are going to happen and hopefully both of them, but often it's one or the other, um, is I'll get a great image or I will learn something. 
And, and I find that the value of knowledge is equal to the value of a great image because, you know, that allows me to, to practice even better the next time and, and, and have new ideas come forward. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's all about suffering for the work, but sometimes, you know, it's, e- it's easy. I, I love to go out in the summer and spend a day in a field of flowers photographing insects and, and, and water droplets and all that kind of stuff. It's not all difficult. I think the most empowering images that I've ever photographed, I've, I've definitely had to suffer for. But you got started in photography as a result of a gift from your father. I did. And, uh, and, and I'd love to share that story. It's, uh, it's an interesting twist that, you know, if I were to go back in my life five, six years ago and say, hey, Don, by the way, in, in six years, you're going to be a professional photographer. What do you think about that? Uh, I, I'd slowly think that I get insane over the, you know, the, the ensuing years because it was so far away from anything that I was planning. My father was, was into photography when he was little. Yeah, I always playing around in the dark room in, uh, in high school, you know, helping put the yearbook together and all that stuff. And he wanted to become a professional photographer. Uh, but his, his dad, uh, my grandfather, said no flat out. Uh, there's, there's no money in it. You know, you need to have a stable income to support a family. And he was definitely right because, uh, as I've learned over the last few years, it's, it's risky and there's a lot of unknowns on, on this road. Uh, my dad went into electrical engineering and, uh, he worked as a repair technician for a number of years. He had a great career traveling around the world, designing antennas and installing them in mines. And, and, and he was pretty fulfilled with that, but his love was always photography it took me a while to fully realize this. And, and my dad has uh, since passed away. But when he was getting quite ill, uh, he gave me an envelope with some money in it. And he said, you know, go and buy something that you'll enjoy. I just want to see you happy. And I had been a little bit distant from my dad. My parents had been divorced. So I, uh, I, I wanted to reconnect and, uh, and you know, share some knowledge and, and, uh, and, and build a, a stronger bond. So I went out without even thinking, without having ever owned a camera or much of a desire to, to own a camera. And, and I bought one. I bought a, a small little Canon Rebel and brought it back with me. And man, you know, it, that opened so many windows uh, in my mind just to hear all these interesting different truths about the way that we see the world versus the way a camera can capture it and the composition and all these wonderful things that were coming from my dad. And Quickly, I started to be more technically proficient and we started sharing tips back and forth about how to use, you know, the latest and greatest in technology to your advantage. And we had some great conversations and, uh, and bonded quite well uh, before he passed away. And so that's where my spark in photography really came from, my dad. And, and he wasn't even really trying to, but it's, uh, it's been a wonderful road since then. I, I'm formally educated in advertising. And, and I remember I was working at an ad agency, boring desk job, you know, designing organizational charts and ads that have to go through, you know, five levels of compliance in the financial industry that completely destroy any creativity you could have. On the side, I'm building up my photography and getting more impassioned uh, with that as, as I continue to, uh, to explore the wonderful world that photography has, uh, has allowed me to see. Yeah. How old were you when your parents divorced? Uh, I, was, uh, I was a teenager. I was an early teenager, uh, probably about uh, 13, 14, somewhere in that age. And uh, it, it, was, it was a little difficult. You know, I was a total computer nerd at that age, but I was an interesting child because my backyard was a forest. So uh, I was uh, an entrepreneur from a very young age. And my hometown 
blueberries grow wild all over the place and you can go and pick them and, uh, and sell them at the local corner store uh, for money. And then they take it and bring it down to the big city, which is Toronto, and, and they'd make their profit. But anybody can just go pick blueberries and, and make a bit of money. And I spent a lot of my summers doing that. I, I like to think back on those early days and think, okay, well, you know, I, I had some pretty good values from then. And, uh, and, and that's really coming in handy as a photographer these days. And that's why I love the outdoors so much. Yeah, the, the reason is, uh, I ask is I'm from a family that, that experienced divorce. And I know that in my early 20s that there came a time where the relationship with my father changed. It didn't revolve, unlike you and your father, around something that we shared in common. But I'm curious to hear how you found that the dynamic between you and him changed as a result of the fact that you were sharing this, this same passion for, for photography. It, it changed quite drastically. Uh, after my parents had divorced, I, uh, I, I didn't see my dad too much for a couple of years. You know, my mom always had said, uh, you know, anytime you want to go and see him, you're more than welcome to. And looking back, I wish I took her up on that offer more often because I might have seen him once or, or twice a year. And really, it should have been just about every other week. Uh, and I miss a lot of that time. Uh, we had grown quite distant. I had always been a, a solitary person, especially at that time in my life, and sort of kept to myself. And yeah, I, I look back on that time and, and the way I was able to heal that relationship. And I'm so glad that I could. I, I, I didn't think that that would have been possible. And, and we shared so many laughs and so many great memories and really came to understand each other as, uh, as adults before the end. And, and I think that, yeah, that, I'm sure that most divorces are, are never, you know, clean cut and everybody's happy at the end of it. You know, they happen for a reason. And if you've got a child involved, then the child is, is usually more of a victim than, uh, than anybody else because they're just torn between two people, even in the best, best scenario. So uh, I, I'm not sure exactly if your experiences uh, at Barry Next, but uh, it, it, it was a learning experience. It, it really showed me a, a different side of the world that wasn't so sheltered. And, uh, it, I think it helped grow me as a person early on. And, uh, and that's, that's where I am today. Yeah. You, you talk about, you know, as a kid being fairly insular and, and I kind of was the same way, but your photography actually takes you into a world that's very expansive. You know, you're out in the natural world where things are just like amazing at large, overwhelming at, at times. And, and your images pick out some wonderful details, particularly, the images that you've been making of, of snowflakes. How did you get into photographing the first one and get to the point where you felt like, wow, I want to do this. I want to do this more. Well, it goes back to childhood, really. Uh, I wasn't photographing them back then, but I guess I had a childhood curiosity. And I'm sure a lot of kids do. You know, when you see a snowflake fall uh, on on your mitten or your sleeve and, and you take a close look at it. And, and my dad was always good at, at answering my questions. And, you know, every kid goes through a phase where they constantly ask why. And I always got an answer. And when, you know, it got to some level in that chain where he didn't have one, he helped me find one. And, and that interest in sort of the natural world on, on every level was, uh, was huge for me, especially when I started to discover snowflakes later in life. Now, I was working at that boring advertising agency I mentioned earlier. Uh, I had just bought myself a Christmas gift. I had gotten, uh, Canon has a pretty spectacular macro lens, the MPE 65 millimeter lens. And it's special because it gets a lot closer than the average macro lens, about five times closer. 
This allowed me to, you know, I was playing around at my office, uh, you know, lunch break, photographing a ballpoint pen, staples, paper clips, cork board, you know, just about anything that you could find in an office that you thought would be interesting. A uh, spider uh, comes along, I stop what I'm doing and try to photograph the spider. But I looked outside and it was snowing and I thought, okay, well, I, I like snowflakes, you know, I, I haven't really looked closely at one in a long time and now I've got the tool in my hand to do just that. Uh, my grandmother had uh, knit me a pair of, uh, of black mittens for, uh, for Christmas and just threw it, into, uh, threw it into my bag of stuff and said, keep these in your car in case you get cold. So I, I had some, something to let the snowflakes fall on and started photographing them. And as soon as I got the first one, I, I just was, my jaw dropped. I was taken aback. And, and the whole childhood curiosity that I had had when I was very young before my parents had divorced, always asking why that, that inquisition about the world around me just completely rekindled itself. And, and I was just uh, taken away by it. And it just snowballed from there. Uh, pardon the pun. <laughs> well, your shots are really interesting because you make it a little more of a challenge for yourself in the way that you photograph them. Um, typically, it, it, It's a challenge. Yeah. But it's, it, it's funny because you look at a, a lot of people that have photographed snowflakes before and they're using like uh rigs where the camera's mounted and then you've got like a microscope slide where the snowflakes are and then flashes underneath and you've got these knobs and things to adjust the focus in this big apparatus. It's very intimidating. So the way that I do it requires a camera and a mitten. And so from a, a, an equipment standpoint, things are a little simpler and, and easier to approach. But the technical side of the process comes in, you know, when, when I get into editing and it takes me hours and hours to put one of those images together. Yeah, yeah, and it's fascinating to see that to see that process because one of the, the the points people should make is that oftentimes when other people have photographed snowflakes, it's straight on, so the snowflake is parallel to the plane of of the camera. But for many of your shots, you're doing it at an angle, and you're dealing with such incredible shallow depth of field to start with that you can never really capture everything in a single shot and and render it sharp. Uh, so tell us why shoot it at that particular angle, because that's obviously going to make it more more difficult. And how do you resolve the issue of having to make sure that the entire image, the entire image of the of the flake is is tech sharp? Well, um, the very first ones I had photographed on an angle and I had noticed something uh, quite spectacular and that I was able to get the light to reflect off the surface of the snowflake. And shine back into the camera, uh, giving a, a very glowy, glistening effect to the crystal. But you're right that there's so very little in focus when you do it that way. But I, I love the liveliness of it. And as, as I continued to explore, I found all sorts of interesting science that could only be observed by photographing it in that way. I'll, I'll mention that in a second. But that the process is to photograph, and let's say the average snowflake is three millimeters, and, and that's a good snowflake, three millimeters in diameter. I might need to combine 30 frames in order to combine, you know, to, to get the entire thing in focus from front to back. And there's, you know, there's technical reasons for that. And I love digging into the science and the physics of, uh, you know, diffraction limiting and, and exactly why I can't shoot at, you know, F200 and have it all in focus. And, and yeah, there, there's technical reasons for that. Light doesn't bend that way. But the process means that I have to move that camera like a tenth of a millimeter every time I go through the focus. And it's all done handheld, uh, which is a bit of a challenge in and of itself, not to lose sight of the, the object and, 
whether it's snowflakes or water droplets or some insects, you know, the process is all the same. And to, to get, I, I might take two to 300 pictures of the same snowflake, and then I'll use maybe 40 of them uh, in, in the final result. Doing it that way gives me some wonderful definition. Like I'll get edge detail uh, in certain snowflakes that show you the three-dimensional qualities of the crystal that uh, you'd be oblivious to if you were photographing it flat. More than that, this year uh, particularly, I found some snowflakes that have a lot of color in them. And this is something that hasn't been, you know, I'm sure it's been photographed before scientifically and whatnot, but uh, not to the same level of art as, as I've been able to explore. Again, there's tons of physics in there. Uh, thin film, optical interference, if you want to look it up. It's the same stuff that makes you know funny colors in an oil slick or in a soap bubble. Or if you look at the backside of a, of a CD, it's the same phenomenon. And it exists in snowflakes. And it can create rainbow patterns. It can create pink and green and, and orange colors and all sorts of fun stuff. Was that uh, one of the bigger surprises that you you made as a result? Oh, of- was it ever? Oh, you, when I first saw that, I was just take and I just dug into the computer and started researching, okay, what is this that I just photographed? Because I was, I was not expecting to find it. And that's one of the, the explorations in photography that I love. I'll photograph something that I don't know. And I'll immediately be excited after I've taken the picture, even before I've looked at it, you know, on the computer, I start researching it. Uh, whether it's an insect that I've never heard of or seen before that looks kind of odd, or if it's a interesting physics in a snowflake or you know, something fun in water droplets or even in landscape work. I, I play around with infrared photography and, and there's always some fun, uh, fun little bits of, of science to discover in that too. And so, yeah, the, the color was, was fascinating. When I discovered that in a snowflake, I thought, holy, what, what is going on here? And then, you know, your heart starts to, to beat a little faster. The adrenaline gets pumping because you can see this when you're actually taking these pictures. But you have to try and, and keep yourself calm because you know that there's still a hundred or so more frames you need to get of the snowflake before it uh, melts or, or blows away or gets smothered by other falling snow. So you've got to work quickly and accurately, uh, even though you've got tons of excitement just building up inside of you. Well, why the choice to hand hold them? I mean, you're working with such such small tolerances. Is it impractical to be able to use a tripod so that all these things can end up registering, you know, well, when you're trying to combine all these images? In, in this method, uh, it's a, a tripod would be impractical. The snowflake will fall on this mitten and the angle of which it falls and rests is always going to be different from one snowflake to the next. And so you've got to position the camera to get exactly in place. But it's not just to find the snowflake in the frame, it's to get the perfect angle to illustrate the, uh, you know, the, the reflective surface and that kind of stuff. And I'll often take a picture and realize, okay, this angle isn't right and adjust the camera and adjust it again and again. And I'm, I'm sort of swaying my entire body while I'm keeping that camera in focus. I, I like to make a comparison to, let's say you've got a, a small bird flying around in a cloudless blue sky and you've got like a massive telephoto lens on and try to find the bird. It's going to be very difficult. And so that's, that's the beginning part of the process. Hunting for the snowflake by hand is tricky enough. Doing so on a tripod where I've got the tripod locked down and I constantly would have to readjust it to find it would take, you know, maybe 10 minutes to track down the snowflake, uh, maybe another 10 minutes to get the angle exactly the way it needed to be. And in that time, the snowflake could have melted or, uh, or, you know, more snow will fall or it'll blow away because there's often wind blowing at the same time. And so a tripod would just be an, an added hindrance to, to the entire process. So, uh, you know, what, what I do is with this level of, of macro lens, uh, I, I can hold the front of the lens with my left hand and I can 
kind of also rest that hand on, on the surface that I'm shooting so that it allows me a certain level of stability. Uh, but it's still all handheld. And, and in my experiences, and I've tried, you know, there's all sorts of macro gear, tripod rails and, and the works in order to, to, and that stuff is best in studios, right? You know, it's not going to be the, the best if you're completely, uh, you know, finding a subject that's never in the same place and, and never in the same orientation. So yeah, no tripod and it's worked well. But that also means the editing process becomes, instead of maybe a, a half hour, it, it'll become a four-hour editing process with all the fix and, and uh, you know, adjustments that are needed to correct for. And it'll be slight, uh, but if, if my angle shifts by like a fraction of a degree one way or another, then Photoshop will have a very hard time realigning things because the perspective is slightly different. And straight lines don't line up exactly the way they should. And, and as some, somebody that's, uh, you know, I, I like to say that I'm a perfectionist when it comes to it. I, I go in and I correct all of these things and, and it's mind numbing work. Thankfully I can, you know, watch reruns of Star Trek or whatever in the <laughs> background, uh, when I'm working on them, but it, it's definitely a time commitment to get these done. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. They've made it easy for me to finally get my website up, which you can find at abarionx.net. But but what about you? You either don't have a website or you do have a website and you're not completely happy about it. It either is because the, the way it looks, the way it navigates, the, the, all the work that you have to do to keep it updated. Well, why not try Squarespace today and discover for yourself how easy and painless it can be to build and more importantly, maintain a website. And the great thing about it is that there's no learning curve involved. Almost as soon as you open an account, you're dragging images in, you're writing text, you're importing videos, you're changing the templates, you're changing colors, fonts. And then within an hour, you're looking at a stunning website. And I want you to have that experience. And there isn't any reason why you can't go out and start playing with it today. So just go right now to squarespace.com forward slash candid frame and sign up for a free account. There's no credit card needed. Just try it out and start building your website. Then if you decide to purchase it, use the offer code candid frame four and get 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, including monthly and annual plans. That's squarespace.com and use the offer code candid frame four. everything you need to create an exceptional website. You're very generous in sharing your technique. I've seen that you've talked about it on Martin Bailey's show and on TWIP and in other conversations. And some people are very hesitant to share as generously as you do. But when I when I heard about everything you go through, I said, oh, he has no worries because I can't think of about nine-tenths of the people out there would be willing to put this much work into creating any photograph. Well, that's part of it too. But, you know, I, I get a lot of respect for, you know, maybe it's a bird photographer that spends a week in a blind to photograph some bird feeding its young uh, that's very, uh, you know, skittish and, and, and afraid of people. Or you know, And I hear these stories and these techniques and it makes me appreciate the image a lot more. 
And one of the biggest challenges that I've found with photography, especially landscape work, is uh, like I, I do art shows, not many of them, but there's one or two of them that I do a year and people will come by. And, and the first question people ask is, oh, you must have a great camera or what kind of camera do you have? <laughs> so, depending on how, uh, how ignorant they are, I might say, you know, it's made by the same company that makes Shakespeare's pen or some uh, lewd comment like that just to, to throw them off. But the perception of the public is, is that they can do it. Like if, if, if I've got a great landscape picture, maybe it's, you know, lightning or what have you, they'll say, oh, well, you know, yeah, that's just luck. You know, I wish I was there. And to overcome that perception is very difficult. And I often found the best way to overcome that perception is to tell them exactly how I did it. To say, okay, well, let's see. Are you able to do it? Here's 100% the process that I've gone through uh, in order to take this image and be completely upfront about it. Uh, because if, if my work doesn't stand on its own as artwork and people are saying, well, that they can do it themselves, then I almost have to defend my artwork by completely describing the process. In today's day, when, when everybody calls themselves a photographer, I, I think that that's almost a necessity to, to be completely open about your process. And if somebody wants to go ahead and, and do the same thing because now they've got the tools to do it, then great. Let them have their own artistic interpretation of, of that process. Uh, but, but your art is still your art, and it's not diminished by letting other people know how it's made. How has the work that you've been doing with the snowflakes informed the work that you do Besides that, when you're doing the landscapes, when you're doing the travel photography, how has that changed how you shoot? Uh, well, it's allowed me to be a little bit more meticulous. I, I see the time that I put into a snowflake image, you know, not just the shooting, of course, but the editing. And it makes me realize that to truly perfect a shot, and I guess snowflakes have made me into, you know, somebody that looks at all the pixels and makes sure that they're all in the right place. You know, if I'm doing a landscape photograph, I might survey the scene first and not even take a picture and come back the next time because, you know, I, I know that things can be better. I know that, you know, I can pre-visualize what will happen in the editing process and how far I can push it. But do I need to do that when I know that if there's mist on the water, it'll be a thousand times better just out of the camera? Or if I play around with waterfall shots and, and maybe I'm uh, playing around with lines and, and rocks and angles and, and I'll sit there for two hours just trying to visualize different angles and, and compositions within maybe you know, 10 square meters just to figure out, okay, what is the absolute best shot that I can make here? And then uh, when the sun comes up, because sometimes those photos are done uh, uh, before daybreak, then I'll move on to another subject or something else. But it, it slowed me down. I've realized that to produce one great image might take me an entire day. And if that day is spent in the field and I come back with one spectacular image instead of a dozen mediocre ones, then I think I've done myself a disservice if I come back with all those shots instead of the one that I really wanted to take. I guess I boil it down to stamping my name on something should make people say, wow, like, an image that I share with people should be better than, than I expect. You know, wh whether it's better than I can get in camera or better than I can do in editing, I want to almost impress myself and sort of push the bar higher every shot that I take and continuing to think outside the box and expand my knowledge. And snowflakes have really helped me to do that. Now I'll think, okay, well, I've got this idea, but what if I add this and that? And can I do it at night? Or what happens if, if I, you know, uh, try to do it in infrared and, and, and how's that going to look? And can I merge things? Can I just think of so many interesting ideas that make it more technically difficult to take the shot. But at the end of the day, it's more technically difficult. So chances are 
people haven't seen that before. And if people haven't seen it before, then, then I might strike a chord with them. Do you find that, that that part of it makes it more exciting when you think about an image? You don't know exactly how to do it. And part of the fun for you is figuring, figuring out how you can pull it off. Absolutely. You know, if, if there's a, an element of adventure or experimentation involved in the photograph, then I know I'm going to learn something. And that, uh, as I had mentioned before, is, is almost as important, in fact, equal uh, as, as taking a perfect or, or a great image of some kind, because there's no such thing as a perfect image. But uh, taking a great photograph and learning a whole lot, if I can do both of those, then that's enough to get me out of bed at any hour. And not to say that I spend all my time in bed just to take pictures, but I find that if, if I can go out there, wherever it happens to be, anywhere in the world, and sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll even put myself in danger, you know, which I wouldn't recommend people to do generally. But, you know, I've broken into some uh, abandoned buildings in, uh, well, one in particular in, in the mountains of Bulgaria that I was really quite scared to go inside. You know, it, the, the end result is an image that I'm quite proud of that, that has a very powerful message. But I, I had to travel. I had to rent a car in a foreign country. We were stopped by police actually at one point. And, you know, th- there's a lot of risk, a lot of adventure. And, and that brings me back to that sort of F8 and B there idea where, you know, the, the adventure, the learning, the, the life experiences are as valuable as taking that great image at the same time. A lot of people would say, well, yeah, if you go to an exotic location, you, you can make some great photographs. So you're not always traveling. No, no. In fact, I, you know, last year I traveled twice and that was the most I've ever traveled. So uh, this year I might be leaving the country once. So um, how do you create those opportunities close to home? I mean, you live up in Canada and, you know, there's absolutely a lot of beautiful things there. But, you know, it, it doesn't automatically mean that there are wonders just outside your, your doorstep every day. So how do you sort of keep yourself pumped up to go out and explore, create those challenges for yourself and to consistently go out there and produce images that really excite you. It's hard. You know, I'll, I'll look out and I'll see the same scene outside my window as I have every other day, and it doesn't really excite me. Um, but if I think that, okay, well, there's this park in town and there's a river running through that park, and maybe if I go there at night, uh, what, what am I going to see at night? Is it lit? I don't know. I've never been there. So let's go check it out. Or maybe I'll play around and say, okay, well, I know that uh, I've, I've been to this same location a dozen times before, but it's springtime now. And maybe the water level is going to be higher. Is that going to change things? Uh, and so what could it change? What could be different now than there was, you know, two weeks ago or in the you know, a different season? And so I think to myself, what could possibly change at any of these locations? Or what could I do to make that particular image more exciting. And that might mean, okay, well, I'm going to combine images together. That might mean that, uh, well, let's see, uh, there, there's an old truck on a rural road around here that uh, a lot of my local photo club is, uh, is a fan of photographing. And uh, so maybe I could go out there and, and one-up everybody else and, and find a different perspective on that same subject that everybody knows. It's in the slideshows and all the meetings and, and get some laughs out of people in, in that meeting. And maybe that's my reward. You know, Finding your own reward for the everyday is something that's really fascinating. I find, too, that if you look at things closer, you'll see them differently entirely. And that's why I love macro photography quite a bit. I, a lot of my, my favorite macro images are, are made on my kitchen counter. I'll, I'll go out to the grocery store or there's a, a garden supply store around here and they'll sell flowers. And I'll just pick a few that might look interesting, some, some colors that look like they'll work well together. 
I'll start make, playing around with water droplet splashes or refractions, or uh, maybe I'll start playing around with spinning my camera around and just having some blurs of colors. And this is just all on my kitchen counter with a couple of flowers I bought for about $5. It's, I guess part of it is knowing what you can do. And, and that's true of editing as well. Uh, you know, I, I teach some Photoshop classes and I think the most difficult part for people to, to really grasp in, in editing as, as well as in shooting is, is not to know how to use the tools available to you, but to know what's possible and then figuring out what tool is required to get there. And it's sort of working a little bit backwards in, in that uh, context. But, you know, there, there's tons of tools in Photoshop. There's tons of buttons and dials and settings on your camera. They don't matter. What matters is, okay, what do you want to do? And then figure out what it takes as far as, you know, yourself being in a specific place at a certain time and, and what gear you have to bring or what, what it takes to make the shot comes secondary to the idea to begin with. Yeah, and, and it makes the point that sometimes the limitation doesn't lie in the camera. It may lie in, in the choices that you're making. Exactly. Uh, the, the timing that you choose. Uh, sometimes, you know, I've been experimenting where, you know, I've got a great landscape shot, but it's missing some foreground element and, and I'll jump into the frame. And, and that's something I hadn't thought of before. It's like, okay, well, I'm looking at this photograph and, you know, wouldn't it be great if I had a model sitting right there and I'm in the middle of nowhere all by myself? It's like, all right, well, I'll set the timer and I'll, I'll jump in and try to do that. And, and I've, I've been realizing that thinking outside of the, the borders of the frame can be hugely helpful. And I was thinking just earlier today, you know, it'd be great to go down and, and try to photograph uh, on the waterfront now that the ice is starting to disappear here. And, uh, well, how can I make a, a, a foreground connect to the background down there on the waterfront? It, there's not a whole lot exciting there. And then for, for some reason, I just thought, well, what if I skip a rock across the water in the front of the frame? It's something I hadn't tried before. It's something I hadn't thought of before. And now I've got that idea in my head and I'm going to go and try and, and make something of that. And, and so just constantly thinking about what possibilities exist around you and, and how to take that scene that you've been to a million times and just do something different with it. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest rewards in photography. It keeps me always thinking, even when I'm not out shooting. <laughs> being a photographer is more about being a small business owner than it is about taking pictures. So a lot of my time is spent, you know, I, I did my taxes today and, you know, uh, invoicing and, and emails and, and all the, the, the paperwork and business work that's required in order to keep the lights on and food on the table. But my mind is always on photography and it's always thinking of how to take that place and do something new with it, do something exciting. On the topic of the business of photography, um, how are you making a living? Because you're choosing, you know, landscape, wildlife, flowers, you know, things to <laughs> photograph and you know, as soon as I hear someone saying that they want to be a professional photographer and that's what they shoot, <laughs> I'm going, yeah, well, you know, expect you, you to lose a lot of weight. in their head, but not to them in their face. Um, <laughs> but you're right to say that it, it's a very difficult road to travel down. I don't photograph people, typically, unless I might throw myself in the frame. The, the biggest business for a lot of photographers out there is shooting weddings or portraits or, you know, family reunions or pets or babies or, or something that involves people. I don't do any of that. So you're right to question how I make money. I, I do a lot of teaching. And I think that that came as a natural progression of me telling people how I do everything that I do. I, when I was just starting out in photography, I, I wanted to immerse myself as much as possible uh, in, in the craft, in the industry. So uh, while working a full-time job, I also started working part-time at a local camera store. They have a policy where when anybody buys a camera, they get a free one-hour lesson. 
So I'd sit down with, you know, tons of people that have no experience with photography and start to teach them how to use their camera. And those skills have been instrumental in me teaching people, you know, some of the advanced tricks and stuff that I do now. So teaching is big. I, I've got a number of courses here at the, uh, the local college and uh, they keep adding more. I guess they like me. Just next week, I'll actually be down in uh, Santa Barbara, California. I'll be teaching a macro photography workshop at uh, the Brooks Institute. And I'm really excited about that. It's the first time I've, I've traveled to do a workshop and, and I hope to do more in, in that field. That said, workshops for me at this point, not enough to make money. I own my own printer. And I, I do printing for other people as well as sell fine art prints of my work. And I take a lot of passion and pride in, in the prints that I produce. And there's some money in that too. But again, not enough to, to make a living. Uh, I license some of my images, especially my snowflakes. Some people are interested in that for all sorts of various reasons. You know, website design. Uh, somebody contacted me the other day to put it on the cover of their PhD dissertation. You never know where, where your images will end up. And, and so there's a lot of fun uh, licensing them and finding out where they'll be. But again not enough to, to keep things running. All in all, my photography is, I'm going to say about 70% of my income. And if that's all it was, I could probably still scoot by. Uh, but I, I've got experience in web design and I design some websites for some artistic projects. I do maybe a, a handful of those a year that, you know, helps fill in the rest. And I do some illustration work, you know, doing Photoshop renderings, uh, making something that doesn't exist into something that does, just playing around in Photoshop. Mm. And, uh, and I've got a few clients that request, uh, you know, models of things and whatnot. And I'm happy to provide, you know, I, I'll do, uh, I'll, I'll speak at camera clubs. I'll, you know, I, I, I still do it. If anybody wants to, to call me up and they live in the area, I'll, I'll clean their camera sensor. You know, I'll do just about anything that I can do uh, relating to photography that can help me uh, pursue my passion and my craft and not leave the industry that, that I'm uh, so interested in. What would you say has been one of the most pleasant surprises about your choice to become a photographer? Something that you could never have imagined you know, five or so years ago when you first picked up that camera? That's a really tricky question. I'm trying to think here. The fact that oh, before this, I mean, people w would respect certain levels of my creativity in, in uh, you know, advertising and, and all that kind of stuff and logo design and, and, and what have you. But to have people want to put something that I photographed on their own wall for their own enjoyment I think that just, you know, the first time that that happened, uh, I was just taken, I, I, I didn't expect it. I, it was just unknown to me. I wasn't thinking that anybody would admire this except for myself uh, to that level, you know, to, to, to have it on their wall. Since then, so many other people have been so positive about having any of my images, uh, you know, on their own walls in, in different fashions and, you know, uh, you know, canvas triptychs and all sorts of fun stuff that I've been able to produce for people as centerpieces in their home. And to have such an impact, to have my images tell such a strong story, to have such a powerful emotional connection and not include any people, that really shows me that I'm kind of on the right path and that photography is uh, sort of the thing that I've uh, been missing in my life until I discovered it. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend another photographer. It can be someone that they've long admired or someone that they've recently discovered. So... Who would that one photographer be and why? It's hard for me to say one, but if I had to admire one, it would be my dad. You know, I, I look back on, on his, his career in, uh, in photography, which was very short-lived and, and just uh, amateurish, but he was my spark. Dave Kamarechka would be that photographer, and you won't find his work anywhere um, because he was a photographer well before the era of, uh, of digital photography. And uh, I've got a shoebox 
full of pictures here if you want to see them. But if, if I were to say one, uh, then I would say my dad. Uh, if I were to pick somebody else that the people can go and look up and maybe be inspired as well. I, I've uh, read a couple of books uh, uh, on various different photographers, but one that really hit home that I quite liked uh, was from another uh, Canadian photographer, Steve Simon. And uh, he wrote the book, The Passionate Photographer, which I took a lot of value in, in the words in there. If you're looking to to get into photography for the passion of it and try to turn that passion into something that you can, you know, run with. Uh, the Passionate Photographer is a great book to read. Uh, one of many, I'm sure, but uh, don't leave that one off your list. Uh, Steve Simon uh, is uh, is definitely a big influence in in the work that I do. Yeah, even there- though he does something, in, he does work entirely different from me, but he's a huge ins- inspiration to to get out there and to find the motivation to do my own thing. Yeah, it's it's a great book. And he's also a wonderful photographer who I interviewed, I think it was last year. So uh, I'll have a link to that interview on the website. But where can people go to find out more about you and everything that you do? Well, I want to mention uh, right now, I've got a project uh, for my snowflakes and it's a book. It's being crowdfunded. And if you're listening to this after April 30th, You've missed out on the crowdfunding, but if you catch it before then, I, I, I hope you can put a link in the show notes uh, to this project. It's $35 for a copy of the book, and we hit the funding goal about a week or so ago, so the book is going into production, and I couldn't be more ecstatic. Uh, the internet has really showed me that, that the world is a global village, and everybody that's admired the work has really taken up the project and has helped me run with this and to make it possible. So uh, I, I'd like to show people that, because that's that's my current uh project of passion. But you can find all of my work at uh, doncom.ca, D-O-N-K-O-M.ca. It's all there. Well, Don, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for, for making the time for us. Thank you so much for having me. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.